0: Welcome, everyone, to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Erin Moniz here with my co host, Blake Dean, and today we are excited to host author and scholar, Dr. Carrie Miles. Dr. Carrie Miles is the author of The Redemption of Love, Rescuing Marriage and Sexuality from the Economics of a Fallen World. She's also the author of New Man, New Woman, New Life, and Face to Face. Um, which is a curriculum that uh, helps people understand mutuality and relationships. As executive director of Empower International Ministries, Carrie travels throughout Africa and India, helping Christian leaders discover the biblical message of what God intended us to be to each other when he created us as male and female, and how we can reclaim this redemptive purpose in our lives. She holds a doctorate in social and organizational psychology from the University of Chicago, and is a non-resident scholar at the Institute for the Studies of Religion at Baylor University in Texas. And boy, did we have fun talking with her. So Blake Dean, tell our listeners just in summary, what should they be listening for in this podcast? What are we going to hear?
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Miles. I thought she pulled out new tools that we hadn't seen this season in the podcast. She addresses um, specifically socio-historic frameworks for not only um, the people found in scripture, but also us as we approach scripture, and I think has some really thoughtful, true, but some really subversive reflections on how our own socio-economic realities um, and what she calls the old and new moralities, listen for that, um, affects our reading of scripture.
0: All right, wonderful. Well, we hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Carrie Miles. Welcome, everyone. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Carrie Miles, who I am a big fan of, and you're going to hear lots about her work and her book. And I bet you you're going to hear some things in this podcast that you have not heard about or thought about before when it comes to women and men in marriage and in the church. Um, But first of all, and just getting started as usual, we do our watch, read or listen segment. Um, So Blake Dean, what are you watching, reading or listening to?
1: Yeah, so I'm admittedly on this um, episode of the podcast because this is something that I have watched um, actually a couple months ago, but has been um, I've been thinking about it a lot more. So I intend to rewatch soon and very soon. It's a um, it was an indie film that was released last year called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, it's this beautiful, um, independent kind of artsy um, meditation on gentrification um, and on property. Um, so it's this story of this young black man who has been told his whole life that his grandfather built this pretty beautiful and ornate house that's in this fairly affluent neighborhood. Um, and so when it's vacated, he, he and a friend of his end up being um, essentially squatters, but making their home there. Um, and so really interesting uh, meditation on gentrification and property rights and race and class. And I highly commend it. Called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. That
0: sounds very on brand for you, Blake Dean. A sort of <laughs> obscure but very interesting movie with a compelling <laughs> storyline that none of us have ever it's heard beautiful. of. That's beautiful. That now we all want to go see. Absolutely beautiful. Well, wonderful. Um what about you, Aaron? I'm not I'm gonna I'm gonna zig instead of zag here because I've got something that I've been listening to that is just gonna bring this cultural moment down quite a bit. Um oh, no. <laughs> so I just made a playlist of the genre of EDM music that would be electronic dance music for some of our listeners who have not ventured into the margins of this uh, playlist but they all have the same beats per minute it's a running playlist it's for jogging so that like your pace I just learned about this and so I made this playlist so that I can run and not like Mm. slow down consecutively now and this is this is even more hilarious because when I say run for those who know me, for those who don't, I'm not really running per se. It's like a (laughs) light jog, maybe even like lighter than you're thinking in your head because, uh, you know, we've all been in quarantine and COVID and I've been trying to get out. I've been trying to be more active. I'm not much of a runner, but it's like, there's a, there's a scene in the movie, um, brady runs a marathon and there's like they're like running and trying out and there's like a line of children like a little chain of children from the school and they're lapping them and they say i think we're going backwards that's like my level of running like whatever feels like you're going backwards that's my pace <laughs> mm-hmm. but now i have a playlist of electronic dance and so music. you're
1: hoping instead of like running more you were like can i spend these this three hours to make a playlist in order to hopefully run more
0: Yes, a three-hour okay. okay. adventure into a playlist for maybe 10 minutes of running tops you know, <laughs> a day. So this, that's that's oh, my, okay. my confession to the internet today. Um, but we have Dr. Miles on the podcast. So Dr. Miles, what are you watching, reading, or listening to?
2: I am reading a book called The Book of Woe by Gary Greenberg. And it's about oh. the development of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, their fifth oh, wow. volume. And it's it's very interesting because I'm a social psychologist and uh, I've never did the, the clinical, uh, th- that whole problem. But I'm finding a lot of parallels between narcissistic personality disorder and uh, and essentially, the kind of cultural things that I, I talk about in Redemption of Love, uh, but it's interesting reading the Book of Woe because you know you think that psychiatry has you know there are all these disorders out there, but they don't really exist the way that the measles that uh, virus exists. Uh, they're they're more social constructs, and so there's a lot of arguing about what these things are and it's pretty much decisions that are made by committee uh at the end so th- mm-hmm. that's an interesting book to read just from the politics mm-hmm. of all of that
0: yes that very timely and interesting book i i definitely nerd out on social psychology so i'll have to put that <laughs> on the list that sounds wonderful
1: well dr miles to get us started i wonder if you could um answer a more personal question which is so you're a social psychologist so what compelled you to write a book called the redemption of love rescuing marriage and sexuality from the economics of a*? <laughs> World"? Um, how do you how do you get there as a social psychologist? Well,
2: I my degree is actually social and organizational psychology and I did my dissertation on how the Mormon Church was dealing with the changing gender roles, so this was in the, the late '70s. I, I finished my degree in '82, um, and you guys are way too young to, to know about all this. But there was this, the beginning of this huge social disruptions in the '60s, and um, and you know I write about in my book how the the uh, industrial revolution sort of undis does that traditional family and Mm -hmm. by the late 70s you had all of these women moving into the workplace you know at at the turn of the century you had less than 10 percent of married women were working uh, in the the marketplace Mm -hmm. and in the 70s They're moving into the market race at just this enormous rate. There's been so much change taking place. And uh, this proved a real problem for conservative churches. And this actually has a lot to do with what I ended up writing about, because um, the Mormonism especially has not only reified gender, you know, reified means taking something that's an abstract concept and making it into something real, like I was saying about, personality disorders in the mm-hmm. uh, DSM. Uh, but Mormonism also kind of deified gender and said that you know God is mm-hmm. literally a man and he literally has a wife and they have spirit children. Mm-hmm. And if you want to become a deified you know, human being, if you want to become a God, which is what Mormonism used to offer anyway, uh, you have to be married and you have to be married under the right circumstances and having children is really important. So these economic changes that were undermining, I mean, nobody can afford to have even four kids anymore, let alone, you know, 10 or 12 that our great grandparents probably had. So how, how do you deal with that that kind of pressure? So it actually was a very, a very natural kind of fit given what The content of what I was studying was. And then in the 90s, a friend of mine named Linda Keda uh, wanted to start a chapter of Christians for Biblical Equality. And so we did that together and I was a study leader and I ended up doing a study every month. And that was also the basis of my book. So it's kind of two different things coming together there. That's fascinating.
1: And I, so kind of the. To play off of that, and so for re- for listeners that maybe haven't yet read your book, because we want them to go and read your book, and we commend it highly. Um, I wonder if you could just very very briefly give an outline of what you argue are the social and economic forces, or some of them, um, that used to support Christian values of marriage and sexuality, and moved maybe in the 60s and 70s to no longer do that or maybe over a longer period of time to no longer support them and what that has done to kind of our theological understanding of sex and marriage.
2: So if we start with Jesus in Matthew 19, (laughs) a good place place to to start. start. indeed. The Pharisees come to Jesus, this is recorded in Matthew 19, and they ask him about grounds for divorce. And Jesus won't, talk to them about grounds for divorce. And instead he's saying essentially what the premise of, of my book is, uh, that that's not what, he, he wants to talk to them about God's intent when he created us. Uh, so he sends us back to Genesis one and two instead of Genesis three. And the Pharisees are sort of outraged at the idea that they can't divorce their wives for any, anything that pleases them. Uh, so he said, then why did Moses say to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, it's because your hearts were hard. But in the beginning, it wasn't so. So, you know, most people come away from reading that that passage saying you can't get a divorce, which is exactly what Jesus was trying to avoid talking about. Uh, but <laughs> he, he very clearly says, your culture Is not what God's intent is originally. Uh, That is not what God intended. It's a result of your hard hearts that Moses even gave you these rules. So in the book, uh, we start there, and we go back. I go back to Genesis 1, uh, where Jesus quotes saying, you know, God created male and female uh, in his own image and uh, gives them both dominion over the earth and both the blessing of children. And then he sends us to Genesis 2 with his statement that uh, for this reason the man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife and the two become one. You know that's a whole different image uh, and there's other aspects of Genesis 2 as well where you start out with the human being created as a single being mm-hmm. in the beginning uh, who's not called a man and that's a, a translation of ha adam which is what he's really called uh, But he's he's not an ish he's not a male and he's just a single earth creature that god made out of the ha adam the uh, Adama, the uh, dust of the earth and he divides him in two because it's not good for him to be alone And only when you have the woman there, do you have a male. Only when the woman is created, she's Isha, and he's Ish now for the first time. But it's when you get into Genesis 3 when the hard hearts pop up, right? And uh, the man and the woman decide to go their own way. And this is part of that narcissism that I'm talking about. They want to have control over their own lives. And they they become alienated from God in the process of doing that. And this is where you get the curse. This is what's called the curse, uh, which people often view as being a curse on the man and the woman. But if you read it carefully, you see that it's the curse is pronounced on the serpent and on the ground. Mm-hmm. So now you have the ground is cursed for their sakes, and God tells them all these things that are going to happen to them as a result of living in a world where the ground is cursed that's where the socioeconomics comes in because economics is the study of choices made under conditions of scarcity but before the ground is cursed people are living in the garden of eden and there is no scarcity so an economic an- analysis can't apply it's because it's a study of the choices that you make under conditions of scarcity Okay, so now with the ground cursed and the people are driven out of the garden, God says to the woman, you're going to have a lot of children. Well, that's a truism of rural societies where people are are farming and living that way is you need a lot of children because you have to have all those children as a source of labor. And of social security, I mean, they didn't have social security she's told you're going to have, you're going to bring forth children in sorrow, you're going to have a lot of children, and you're going to turn to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. The kind of socioeconomic model of looking at what happens to people living in under conditions of scarcity, is that you need a lot of children. And because of the need for a lot of children, that becomes woman's most important work. But there's, also an infinite amount of work to be done if you ever read like little house on the prairie or or any of these, uh, these yeah. sort of things there's just everything you produce you you pretty much uh, are producing yourselves so even little house in the prairie is fairly late in the industrial revolution all things considered uh, so you you needed a lot of kids um but there's still all this work to do so people pretty quickly discover that they have to come up with a sexual division of labor, I guess they call it gender division of labor now, where the women are doing the things that are compatible with sustaining a pregnancy. Because There's a a lot of things you can't do when you're pregnant. You can't spend the (laughs) whole day out working in the hot sun and lifting heavy things, you would lose the pregnancy. Or if you're breastfeeding, your milk would dry up. And a substitute for breast milk is really, maybe the last 90 years that we've had it, maybe not even that that mm-hmm. long. A baby without uh, breast milk died because there, there wasn't a substitute for it. So the women end up doing the things that are compatible with pregnancy and childcare. And that leaves everything else as men's work. And so the men are doing the things that require interacting in the community, having power over other men. I think when God says to the man in Genesis three, you'll you'll eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. He's referring to this anxiety, this driving for power that uh, men feel compelled to do in the fallen world. Because the woman is what economists call domestically specialized in the home, you know most men in in the traditional world would not have presumed to tell the wife how to run the household that was that was her domain, but she didn't really have a yeah. lot of power outside of that and she's very dependent on him, so you get the subordination of women coming out of this domestic specialization that she becomes dependent on. My
0: husband, oh gosh, that uh, that already is, is. I mean, like I'm, I'm just like on the edge of my seat. I read the book. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fantastic. But, uh, but no, this is this is so good because I know I had an aha moment when I realized that the way we interpret scripture when it comes to gender roles, particularly in the mm-hmm. home, was often devoid of an understanding of this realities of agrarian society which existed in the biblical times and for so long to the industrial society we live in today so please please uh wherever you were going <laughs> next next let's 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 hear it
2: well because the woman is dependent on the, her husband uh gary becker who is the one who did the economics side of what i'm quoting here he He points out that virtually every culture has some form of marriage, which is a legal contract, usually between the fathers of the bride and the groom, Mm. that says that the man can't use her up in childbearing and then just throw her away. Mm. And so you have legal marriage, which might be, it might be literally a contract, that people used to write a marriage contract, uh, depending on on circumstances, or it might just be codified in customs and common laws. But it specifies what he owes her, what she owes him, and, and so most of the marriage that we're looking at in the world is is that kind of marriage. It's not the kind of marriage that Jesus was talking about. It's itself law of moses kind of situation where it's there because our hearts are hard you know because otherwise people would have this strong incentive to take advantage of each other Um, without without christ in our relationships i i think people do so i'm going to go off gary becker here uh because you needed to get men to make this upfront commitment of marriage before the woman starts having sex with him or she even knows she can have children, you have to incentivize men to uh, make this upfront transfer. And so I, I argue that the traditional sexual morality, which was essentially a, a very double standard where the women were expected to be chased you know versions at marriage and chased afterwards. well, there's no real constraints on the males sexual behavior except as they infringe on the property rights of another man. You have to have this, this kind of sexual um, sexual morality because if women gave their services away without the marriage commitment, then no woman could require that commitment. So that was, um, it would not be good for the species uh, in those days. You, you see a lot of stuff like Les Miserables, if you've seen the the play or read the book, mm. where the one of the main characters has a child out of wedlock and all of the stigma that's attached on her. And I think modern days, we look back on that. isn't that awful that there was the stigma. And, and, you know, in those kinds of societies, people spent a lot of time policing each other on their sexual morality. And if you had a baby outside of wedlock, you could very well both starve to death because you, you would be outside the pale. No man's going to worry about uh, you in, uh, in like, say, Pride and Prejudice when one of the younger sisters runs off with a army officer and the whole family's in this huge panic because she's going to ruin the marriage prospects of all her sisters Uh, so these these were very real Mm -hmm. kinds of issues uh, and they had meaning in the past in ways they have no meaning today so you end up with this this kind of i call it a sexual cartel where the, the women agree to this kind of uh, policing of their own sexual behavior in order to induce men to marry. So what happens about 200 years ago is the Industrial Revolution, where before everything that was produced was produced in a household. You might not produce pots yourself, but chances are if you went to the market and bought a pot, it was being produced in another household. And with the Industrial Revolution, you have uh, more and more things are being produced in the marketplace. So uh, this begins about 1800. And sure enough, by, by 18, when did Jane Austen write all her books, which are, are mostly about, do you marry for love or money? They're like in the 1812s. Uh, so even by, by then, now you start being asked, do you marry for love? money, so things are starting to change because that love or money equation was not part of it before. Uh, you pretty much marriages were arranged if their if your families had any money at all, and nobody really cared what the bride and groom thought of each other. Uh, so now this is this is changing. This is in play, and so in eighteen hundred, I think. 70 percent of the American population are engaged in agriculture. By 1900, 100 years later, it's like 40 percent. And by 2000, it's one or two percent. And the whole nature of agriculture has changed dramatically. So if you ever drive up the middle of California on Highway 5, you'll see the Harris Farm Cattle Ranch. And they will have more cows just standing by the side of the road than you ever knew existed in the world. So a lot of our farming now are these big factory farms, uh, pretty much the small family farm where you needed a lot of children uh, have gone away. As a result of this, the men who used to be in the household or somewhere around on the farm, uh, most of the time they've all had to get jobs in the city because now they have to buy the things they used to produce and at the same time you've got all these children that you had to help with the farm or to you know pick bugs off the crops or take care of the dairy cows and so forth and now you have to educate them because they're in a different world. Along with the industrial revolution you've got this birth rate dropping like a rock. So, the average American woman in 1800 had uh, 7.3 children in her lifetime. Now, they, they didn't all live, but that's sh- how many children she had. And if you wow. look at the 1800 census, 25% of the women between the ages of 15 and 44 gave birth. Uh, that's considered the childbearing ages, 15 to 44 so it was like pregnant women everywhere you went by 1900 the birth rate the average american woman had 3.4 children in her lifetime and by 2000 again the average american woman has it's a little over two i think those numbers are inflated by the fact that we have so many immigrant groups that are still having children and the Mm -hmm the kind of average Euro-American white woman is maybe having one. Uh, and, and you see parts, a lot of Europe, they're well below replacement rate. Uh, Japan, of course, China required it by law, but the, the birth rate dropped precipitously because children are no longer an economic benefit. They are a, an enormous cost. And I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen numbers on what it costs to raise a child up to age 18 before they even have to start paying university fees. It's, it's well over a quarter of a million dollars and even more if you're in yeah. an urban area. So what happens in this is that um, you no longer need all those children and that radically undermines the whole motive for marriage because how are you going to force a man to marry for children that are just going to be a huge cost to him, him now? Um, So, so the marriage rate drops as well. At the same time as this process of industrialization is going on, the things that men did traditionally in the household, they left the house first, but the things that women did left it later because they were so tied up with childcare. And even if you only have four children, as opposed to eight, uh, there's still a lot of things that are going on in the home. But eventually the things that women did traditionally in the home, like keeping cows, uh, you know, growing the vegetable Mm. garden, uh, canning food, doing the laundry, uh, these things are being done outside of the home as well. And so the homes becomes a center of consumption, and there's still a lot of work to do there, but you're not producing anything. So by the this process is kind of um interrupted in the this is well underway by the 1920s. But then we have the Great Depression and then World War II. And then after World War II, you have 12 million service, mostly men, returning home and marrying 12 million women. So you have this huge pent-up demand for marriage and childbirth. And and they've, they've all got to have some place to live. You know, they can't move back into their Buffalo apartment with their parents and their new wife. So they're building suburbs like crazy and they're building churches like crazy because all these men are coming back and they're traumatized. And they're used to being you know, in groups of other men. And you've got all these women who are raising all these children now uh, without uh, their mothers nearby because their mothers are back where they came from. You know, the, the 50s look a lot different. So this birth rate that had been dropping suddenly bumps up again. Uh, And the marriage rate, of course, uh, bumps up again too. Mm -hmm. But by the 60s, the underlying economic forces catch up with everybody and you have all these revolutions. You have, uh, uh, for reasons that I won't go into, the the whole civil rights movement hits in the 60s. The sexual revolution, the women's uh, rights, uh, women's lib, uh, these all kick in. And you also see divorce for the first time becoming a a big thing. Uh, Maybe because all these people who hurried up and got married before he shipped out are finding that they really didn't like each other that much uh, or that being stuck at home in the suburbs with four kids wasn't really working. Uh, So you you see all of those those old traditional uh, ways are no longer economically, even possible Mm. for some people. So you have the women uh, going into the market because the things that they used to produce at home are just not being done anymore. Uh, You know, women were traditionally the keepers of the hearth, they kept the home fires burning. And you know, it's illegal where I live to have a home fire, you know, you can't burn You know, if you wanted a pair of socks or a sweater, you, your mother knit it for you, right? And, and now if you want to knit something, you have to buy like 20 little balls of wool that all cost twenty dollars each. It become expensive hobbies. <laughs> yeah. So like the men a hundred years earlier than the women needed to get jobs so they could buy the things they used to produce. And, and so and as they say, there, there's no reason for marriage anymore. And uh, because you know, you're know you only having one or two kids, and then that undoes the whole sexual cartel. If you are no longer giving away the, the milk for free for fear that he won't buy the cow, there's a lot of people out there giving the milk away for free and you can't entice anyone to buy the cow just for the seg- sake of having sex. So yeah. the marriage rates dropped enormously. And it, I think the age at first marriage is kind of stable at, in the late 20s now. But that doesn't take into account the fact that large numbers of people are just not marrying at all. In 2014, I think 53% of the people between the ages of 25 and 34 had never been married. Of course, there, there's a lot of cohabitation. The world has just changed dramatically. This is what yeah. why I'm saying in the book: we we need to go back and see what the Bible is really saying in order to mm. make yeah to make it. any sense of it. Yeah. And, and what what is the real Christian reason for marriage?
1: And I found this this part of your reflection so compelling, and it's like. Number one, I'm thoroughly impressed. You can pull those statistics just out of thin air. You you gave me some
2: hints, so I went and looked them up.
1: (laughs) But but still, I'm so impressed. But number two, I'm so compelled by this idea that no longer are we able, and perhaps we never should have in the first place, but we're no longer able to say, well, this is like to reference a sense of like social morality to undergird Um, like the Christian sexual ethic, but we actually have to have theological resources for this rather than just referencing the maybe safety or benefits of the um, Christian sexual ethic. I wonder, you say in your book um, that you propose the underlying principle of Christian marriage is being reconciled to God through our redemption in Christ. How is this different from what you label in the book and what you've just outlined for us, which is the old morality or perhaps the new morality?
2: There's no marriage ceremony anywhere in the Bible. The traditional marriage ceremony comes from the Book of Common Prayer, um, the Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of what marriage is, is is very different. And Jesus essentially says it, uh, that we are both the man and the woman are created in God's image. Both are given dominion over the earth and both are given the blessings of children. Children are a blessing, not a commandment. This, this is an imperative of blessing, not an imperative of, of uh, command. You know, we look at that now and we say, well, obviously, but people debated for hundreds of years about whether woman was made in the image of God. And in many parts mm-hmm. of the world, women are essentially property. And as I I mentioned, I work in Africa and India, where is the the kind of 1950s understanding of of gender, would say that the man got all the dominion over the earth and the women got all the responsibility for children. The Africans say, well, the the men get the children too. That's why men marry, is that they own those children, which used to be true in, in Europe as well. So the notion of coming out and saying that we're both made in the image of God, and that we're both given dominion and the blessing of children together. You know, it's a it's a different kind of way of looking at not just marriage, but also identity as well. As, as I said earlier, Genesis two kind of gives us a different version of creation where we're essentially asked answering the question raised in Genesis one. And the question in Genesis one, well, why does God create us as gendered? you know, why are we both there? Uh, why do you have to have both to have dominion over the earth? And so they tell. he tells the story in a slightly different way where the first creature is built out of the earth and God breathes life into him. And we use the male pronouns because there's no Hebrew pronoun. You can't call a being it, but he's not ish as I said earlier. He's ha-adam, he's the earth creature. He's made out of adama, which is the word for the red earth of which he was made. Then God almost immediately says, it's not good that ha, the earth creature should be alone. I will make an azer konegdo for him. Now, again, this is this is another word that was used against women because in King James, Acer connecto is translated as help meet. This is old English, meaning you're you're nodding your head there. Uh, Yes. Oh, gosh. uh, The word meet in old English meant suitable or fitting for him, but it gets corrupted into help mate, which sounds like, Mm -hmm. you know, playmate, uh, someone who's inferior, or then in more modern translation, a helper. And a helper Mm -hmm. is someone who comes into the dishes, right? The servant. Uh, Now, there is a Hebrew word for a subordinate helper, which is, you know, the one that we're always, when they read that, people assumed that God meant that he was, she was the housemaid, which is very much taken seriously in Africa, where in a tribe in Southern Uganda, the way you ask a young man if he's married is you say, have you taken a servant yet? Uh, so, <laughs> so wow. that word is, um, Yikes. I it. Um, but that's not the word God uses to refer to what the earth creature needs. Instead the word azer, which is translated help or helper is used mostly in the old testament to refer to god god is Mm -hmm. our help uh so okay so god is saying to the earth creature you need a help so we think you know maybe if we just said help just said azer we'd think of someone high above the man like god is or the other times where it's used in the old testament it's referring to a king coming to the aid of another king or a general. It's a strong help. Uh, But instead, he he doesn't say he needs an inferior help or a superior help. He needs a connecto help, which is the word translated suitable or or fitting. Uh, When I was first working on this, I mentioned to a friend of mine who's an Orthodox Jew, what I was thinking on this. And he said, Connecto means facing. And I Mm. said, well, that's even better. (laughs) (laughs) Because that works. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. God said, you need, you don't need an Abed. You don't need an inferior helper. You don't need another God. You need a help on the same level as you, a face-to-face helper. And we actually have a version of our study guide. It's available on Amazon. It's called Face to Face. So that's what God said the man needs is a help on the same level. So he puts, he puts the uh, earth creature into a deep sleep. He divides them in two, uh, brings them back to each other. And the man who is now a man, he's ish for the first time, says this one at last. This one at last, and I found somebody like me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called Isha Sa, because she's taken out of man. And then we have the passage that Jesus quotes: "For this reason, a man leaves his father and his mother." That's very much not what patriarchal culture was, and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And then Genesis two goes on to and the man and woman were naked and they were not ashamed. And so we look at what does it mean to be naked and unashamed? You know, there's no striving Mm -hmm. for power between us. Um, the, The striving for power comes in with the hard hearts when the world falls apart. And we very much see Jesus and Paul bringing us back to that, that one flesh, uh, face-to-face kind of communion where it's not about laws and withholding and and you know legal fights that's not what God intended to be when he made us as as male and female amen
0: amen I, it's, it's I, I just I feel blessed just hearing <laughs> these words. It's so it's so wonderful, and um, we I I have absolutely loved this conversation. But I want to I want to go ahead and, and and reroute it so that uh, you can spend some time talking. We would love our listeners to get to know you better. To not just uh, go buy your book, go buy her book, by the way, um, but also just to, it's to so good to, <laughs> yes, go buy it, <laughs> go buy it. Um, but also to learn a little bit about um, what you are doing now and about Empower Ministries. But I also just want to say, just as as sort of a summary. Statement for everything. If 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 your brain is kind of exploding right now with all this information, you're like, "Wow, I've never thought about this before." I would say this is a great starting point when we're thinking about when we talk about biblical marriage and when we talk about gender roles. This everything we we heard today completely reframes what we have to think about when we think about traditional marriage roles traditional gender roles because that's a that's a term that gets tossed out a lot but usually lacking this perspective this this history and certainly lacking an understanding of how genesis elevates our view of marriage and and, and instead of um diminishing it like our the cultural uh, variables have done uh, to kind of adjust to the fallen world, um, so uh, so that's my that's my little just hey to listeners if you're wondering kind of what compartment to put this in I would say that's this is a good place to kind of get started into okay so what does marriage look like we've we've seen a little bit of that we need to go back to Genesis you guys need to buy the book and continue this conversation um, but Dr Miles I would love for you to uh, tell us about how our listeners. Can uh, learn more from you, um, and and what sort of things are you doing? With you are the executive director of um, Empower Ministries International, um, and can you just t- just sound off a little bit? Just tell us a little bit about about what what that is and and how we can support it.
2: So I finished writing the book in two thousand five. It was published in two thousand six. So this was before I started going to Africa, but I had a Bible study guide. Before that, and an Anglican priest in Uganda—he's Ugandan—got a hold of it and started inviting me to come to Africa. And I'm like, I love to travel. And, you know, I would go anywhere. I never wanted to go to Africa. I was sure I would die. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, sh- I share that. I share that <laughs> yes. So I resisted this invitation for. A year or two, until finally God just kind of pushed me out the door. And I went to Africa in October 2007 for the first time. And I'm teaching this stuff, and I'm like setting, setting off bombs everywhere I go. These less developed countries, their economics, uh, their economics was a lot more like the world that Jesus is writing to. Or Jesus was addressing than um, our world today. And Africans are very Bible conscious, very committed. You know, the, the born agains anyway are, are very committed. Christians, they know the Bible much better than we do. But they're reading it through the eye lens of the 19th century missionaries who had a lot of these same prejudices. So they, they yeah. understand the Bible in ways that we don't. But they're, they were taught by the missionaries that women were cursed by God. You know, there are churches in the U.S. still who will teach you that women were cursed by God in Genesis 3. But we don't practice witchcraft. So we don't mm-hmm. know what it means to be cursed. And we don't know what it means to be cursed by God. For Africans, traditionally, the statement that God cursed women meant that she's doomed and It doesn't matter how a man treats her because God himself has cursed her. And, and in a a lot of these uh, traditional religions, uh, mostly what you went to the traditional God for was to curse other people. So this is, this is just a kind of devastating thing. And it is for the women's own, um, for the women's own self-esteem, the idea that, that they're cursed by God. And if, if, somebody is cursed and you try to make things better for them then the curse might come on you so it, it's a whole different way of, of thinking so as they say we're we're like setting up setting off bonds everywhere i go because i'm i'm teaching this and it, it affects the whole way that people think about themselves uh so it it was really it's been a a wild ride for us. I'm, I'm saying us because there, there are other people who, who work yeah. with me and empower, uh, just trying to see what a huge transformation it is in people's lives when they realize that uh, that this kind of traditional customary way of doing things is not God's will, that God never wanted to curse anybody he wants to bless us, and he still wants to bless us. And women woman are, is more than the childbearer, sex object, and source of mm-hmm. labor that uh, they end up being in the traditional world. So we have a, a Bible study guide, 13 studies, starting with Genesis, uh, looking at what Jesus says, and a huge, huge, huge thing that jesus does is that he frees woman from the idea that she's nothing but a baby machine that she has worth beyond mm-hmm. um beyond bearing children she's more than just a housemaid that she has a relationship with god too but he also addresses men and i think i think this is part of we're coming out of the other side of our Christian heritage in the United States and getting more of this way for mm-hmm. power seems to be all that matters. Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels telling them to get over themselves. And, <laughs> yes. and they shouldn't be striving for power. And these very hierarchical kinds of societies are not, are not what God created us for. So that's right. that's very powerful. And then we look at Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, in light of what was going on in these traditional cultures, and we get an entirely different image of what submission means. Uh, right. Uh, that mm-hmm. submitting ourselves one to another is what that's all about. And that the yeah. men who are in the big man position who who are the you know the heads of the household and they own their children and they only slaves and uh, you know, they can boss their wife around, do anything they want to her, those men are being asked to step down out of that role in other, order to raise up their children, to serve their children, to serve their wives, to serve their servants. Uh, and that was re- revolutionary. We have no concept today because we have 2,000 years of living in cultures that were shaped by this imperative that we have no idea how transformative that was in the first century, how that changed the world as we know it, until you get into Amen. some of these historic non-Christian cultures where it's still going on. Oh, gosh.
1: Well,
0: Thanks that, be to God. Yeah. And and that, that sounds like amazing work. Um, I I would encourage listeners um to to look into Empower Ministries and especially if you are interested in gender theology and interested in seeing how God is transforming um the world, glo- the church globally. Um, and, and if, uh, international ministry is, is something that you are passionate about this, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Um, and, and something Dr. Miles that, uh, I'm sure has just, just, been incredible for you, and of course, right now in the time of COVID, uh, we're all kind of having to 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 stay
2: sequestered. But um, yes, I was supposed to go I... to Kenya in May. <laughs> mm. Obviously, no, I don't know. Yes. It's Empower International Ministries. Empower International. And our ministries. website okay, is empowerinternational.org. <laughs>
0: Okay. Wonderful. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as ways that they can, um, find the different, um, studies that you referenced. Um, and listeners, we really encourage you to check this out, especially if today's podcast has raised a lot of questions and a lot of ideas and maybe thoughts that you hadn't thought before, um, Dr. Miles has provided some great resources and has done years of, of work on this. And, um, and we highly recommend, uh, you continuing to educate yourself, um, through these resources. Um, but, uh, this has been, I mean, this has just been wonderful. I, I know. Thank you so much. Yes. We have thoroughly enjoyed yeah, I have this. Too. Um, well, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. And, uh, is, is there anything else, anything else, um, uh, in terms of stuff that you have going on or that you want to tell the listeners? I read
2: something in March that said, don't call up your friends and ask them what you're doing because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> yes. Fair
1: enough. A good so word.
0: true. Yeah, so true. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Miles. We have, we've really enjoyed having you um, on the you. podcast today. Well, guys, we hope that you are still buzzing in your mind about all the things that uh, Carrie talked about. I mean, like, for me, I want to just immediately go back and listen again, because that whole history that she gave is just uh, so fascinating to me, talking about like the sexual cartel and like where that comes from. I I just was on the edge of my seat.
1: I agree. And also talking about, I think the key word for me is, or words are socio-historical cultural necessity and like how... How some of these things that at this point are often used as weapons or are really contentious at one point were just ne- like necessities for living. Yeah, just so we're never environment. we're yeah. never a moral value judgment, but instead mm. we're this is how we do life to move forward. And I thought that yes. was really, really, really compelling. And I, um, I think she's rounded out a lot of our other conversations, bringing in. Um, cultural factors and I just want to say another shout out to her the organization that she's involved in oh, yeah. um, empower international ministries I think what pragmatic examples of the way that culture shapes and forms our gender theology than talking about and learning from people of a different literally almost side of the world yes. than us and the ways that the gospel is freeing women in Africa. It's it's pretty remarkable. And I, I've loved getting to follow her organization since we had our conversation.
0: Oh, gosh. Yes, I completely agree. I, I just really, I love uh, Dr. Miles. I was so glad she could come talk to us uh, today. And so, listeners, um, go purchase her book, the redemption of love, rescuing marriage and sexuality from the economics of a fallen world. It's and so also, good. yes, uh, fascinating stuff. Very much tells you even more than everything you've heard on the podcast today. And also, go visit her website at carriemiles.com to learn how to support the ministry she's a part of and follow her work. Um, but, uh, Blake, do you want to take us out today?
1: Sure. Thanks for joining us, you guys. If you enjoy our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, Choose Your Poison. You can leave us ratings or reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And we appreciate connecting with you and other listeners. And we do love feedback. Also, if you really like the podcast, you should mm-hmm. join our Patreon. You'll receive early released episode of podcasts, uh, varying additional content and Misadventures from your favorite co hosts. Yes. Um, that would be me and Aaron. Go check that out. I'm Blake Dean, and this has been Mutuality Matters with my co host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, mm-hmm. and our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley. Yes. Thanks for listening.